Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Glad you're with us. In this episode, as painful as it is, we have to look again at Donald Trump. He's asking for the judge in his criminal case to be replaced. On another front, there appears to be a recording where he acknowledges he couldn't declassify documents after he left office. Gee, didn't he say he could? Do you know about the BRICS countries? They've got a huge swath of the world's population, and they want to change the balance of power on the planet away from the West. What's really behind the rash of anti-LGBTQ laws sweeping through state legislatures, and that's not even taking into account anti-trans hate? What to do about it? Oh yeah, and, just in the nick of time, the debt ceiling got done. Here we go. Yep. It's Trump again. Let's start with the bad news for the former guy. One, there is, by published accounts, a recording on which Donald Trump acknowledges possession of a sensitive document after he left office. And it would seem to undercut his assertion that anything he kept after January 2021 was somehow automatically declassified. To top things off, the feds already have the recording. Its contents are not yet public, but if Trump does say on the record that he knew he had documents he shouldn't have, he could be one step closer to having more criminal charges filed against him. What's all the fuss about? According to published reports, the recording was in July 2021, well after he'd left office. It had to do with possible actions or sanctions against Iran, certainly a sensitive subject. It's now in the hands of special counsel Jack Smith. He's investigating whether charges ought to be brought. Not only that, one of his lawyer's notes have suddenly become an issue as well. This too is about Trump's handling of classified documents and those notes are also in the hands of Jack Smith. It was this lawyer, M. Evan Corcoran, who eventually turned over documents from Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago in Florida to investigators. Now, ordinarily, written recollections like Corcoran's would be covered by attorney-client privilege. A judge's decision changed all that. Why? Those protections were set aside under what is known as the crime fraud exception, a provision that allows prosecutors to work around attorney-client privilege if they have reason to believe that legal advice or legal services were used in furthering a crime. That's right, used in furthering a crime. By who? Well, I'll leave that up to you to surmise. Why does it seem like Trump's name is increasingly linked to alleged crimes? We may know soon. What's baffling here, certainly to me and probably to you as well, and we've talked about it before, baffling why a person facing multiple investigations, one adverse court ruling, that's Eugene Carroll, and an indictment seems to hold the Republican Party in the palm of his hands. Trump, as is his habit, insists his hands are clean, palm and all, and that the process and the probes are part of a witch hunt on the part of his political enemies. Now, he does have what the media describes as a formidable opponent, finally, in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And yet, DeSantis trails Trump 
in almost every poll of recent vintage. I've said before that the former guy's followers are just a shade this side of being fanatical. Just think about January 6th, 2021, and Trump's vow publicly in the time since to pardon many of the people who organized it. He holds rally after rally, and people still show up and treat him like a rock star. Go figure. And still, we're not done yet. The criminal case against Trump is getting ready to begin, next March actually, and his lawyers want the judge to recuse himself. The reason? His daughter works for a firm that has a number of Democratic officials as clients. Trump's other beef with Judge Juan Mershon is that he gave money to Joe Biden's campaign and two activist groups. The amounts? $15 to Biden and $10 each to the other two. Princely sums, indeed. The trial, again, isn't until next March, so there's plenty of time for this to get settled. On its face, it seems absurd. $15 here, $10 there, $10 there, and those are campaign contributions that should force a judge to recuse himself? His daughter, not him, his daughter is working for a firm that has Democratic officials as clients? Now, if you were to use that same logic, that Trumpian logic, where would that put Clarence Thomas, <laughs> now that you think of it? But I have to figure that as far as Trump's concerned, the walls are starting to close in. And he doesn't even know who to trust anymore. But in spite of all of this, in spite of the multiple investigations, in spite of a single criminal indictment, all the while, his fundraising machine keeps raising money. That's right. I don't even want to speculate on how much it is because it changes so fast. Wonder how much of it will actually end up going to his defense. Next up, the BRICS countries get together and their agenda does not spell welcome news for the West. This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back to The Intersection. Do you know what BRICS is? No, not the stuff you build with. This is B-R-I-C-S. Many residents of Western countries probably do not. It's an acronym, is BRICS, for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Some see it as an alternative to the G7 countries that recently held a summit in Hiroshima, Japan. This is even though both Brazil and India were in attendance at that gathering. Here's the thing you need to know about BRICS. They, it contains 40% of the world's population, some 3.2 billion people. They want to change the world. That is, rebalance it. At least that's what this uh, meeting of foreign ministers had on their agenda. They had that meeting in South Africa, and their message was blunt. 
The world, according to one of those foreign ministers, is multipolar. And old ways, and this is a direct quote, old ways cannot address new situations, end quote. What's interesting about BRICS is that it contains democracies like Brazil and South Africa, as well as autocracies like Russia and China. The presence of Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, was problematic at this meeting, and it shows that geopolitics is never really far away from gatherings, even like this one. There were people who protested Russia's invasion of Ukraine and raked the other countries over the coals for allowing Lavrov to attend. Making things even more complicated is the fact that the International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Putin. That means if he attends the BRICS annual summit in Johannesburg in August, South Africa would be put in the unenviable position of having to arrest him. That's because South Africa is a member of the International Criminal Court. It also has, and this is the part that I think is kind of, what do they say in Great Britain? Kind of throws a spanner in the works. South Africa has long-standing ties to Russia, going back to the apartheid era. People forget, I don't, but a lot of people do. They forget that while the United States and other Western countries condemned the African National Congress for its fight against oppression. And I remember a lot of people, including Dick Cheney, I believe when he was a congressman, that wanted to brand the African National Congress as a terrorist organization. And Russia, at the same time, was helping the ANC. That means that at this point, even though South Africa may privately disagree with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they're not going to say a whole heck of a lot about it while this situation persists because of their long-standing friendship with the Russians. And Russia will play on that. Let's be real. America plays on it the same way with its allies. Now, Remember that that material support that the Russians provided all those years ago, long time now, South Africa appreciated then, and they appreciate now. They have a long memory. That's why they have stayed, from their vantage point, neutral on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But you see, that's not the central issue of the BRICS foreign ministers meeting. It's just, it, it isn't. It's certainly not something that was not discussed. But the fact of the matter is that these folks are looking to change things. Change things, some might say, to the detriment of Western countries. Now, the other part of the story is this. BRICS countries contain large parts of the world's resources, South Africa, India, China, all of these countries, they have large amounts of resources. Brazil. And the thing is, even though they contain these resources, the fact of the matter is they can now use them to barter. 
they can use them to build their economies as opposed to just selling them off to the West, which is what they've done historically, certainly during colonial times. From an economic perspective, cooperation among these countries without input from the West would spell a huge blow to countries like the United States and economic alignments like the EU. Even more daunting, if true, is the assertion that at least a dozen other nations, including Saudi Arabia, want to join BRICS. If that happens, then the organization can in fact hold together in spite of differences in governance and economic priorities in some cases, they'll be a major force before many in the West even know who they are. Keep in mind, this attempt at rebalancing comes as financial ratings agencies have concerns about the economies of a number of European nations, including, and most notably, France. While Western media tends to see these things as separate and isolated, other outlets actually tend to see them as interconnected. And here's something I don't think many people have thought about. What if the BRICS nations are able to come together and negotiate an end to the Russia-Ukraine war, where the West could not? Couldn't happen, you say? I say, you never know. And finally, anti-gay and anti-trans bias is on the upswing in the U.S. and in other countries. It's time to draw a line in the sand and stand with the LGBTQ community and the trans communities and say enough is enough. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, you're here with Mark Riley. It's the voice that you know and the information you can trust. Welcome back to The Intersection. We are, in case you don't already know, in Pride Month. What should be a celebration of the LGBTQ and trans communities has become instead a rearguard action to defend hard-fought rights in these communities. And that is a situation that should never have happened, but it is. And it all starts with a bruise and then successive blows on top of bruises. Shoppers at a Target store in South Florida berate and in some cases attack store employees because of gay pride materials in store windows. That was Target. Target! One of the nation's biggest retailers. Target then pulls the materials from its windows, sparking an opposite reaction from supporters of Pride Month. And you thought these battles had already fought, been fought, and won? Not exactly. The far right has decided to target the LGBTQ community because it sees that community as vulnerable. How else to explain the astonishing 491 bills currently in state legislatures across America that would erode gay rights? In Florida, it was made manifest by the Don't Say Gay bill, and of course, the war on woke that saw numerous books by black authors banned from school libraries. To say the far right feels emboldened 
is an understatement. Some states have as many as 10 pieces of legislation coursing through state legislatures that almost criminalize being gay or trans. The question is whether the LGBTQ community will stand alone in its resistance. I, for one, am not ready to let that happen. It's time for people who support the rights of LGBTQ people to step up and push back. We too often don't learn the lessons of struggles other communities have fought. Right now, the trans community seems particularly at risk. State laws are targeting their right to use public facilities, participate in competitive sports, and a whole lot more. The far right knows the whispers about trans people in their echo chamber translates to allegations of child grooming and even more. The ugliness is shameful and the ugliness must be fought. Among the most shameful element of the demonization of gay people is the cynical, and I emphasize cynical, use of children. On the one hand, they insist children must be protected from the evils of gay indoctrination, whatever that means. At the same time, these same state legislatures do nothing about keeping guns out of the hands of people who have absolutely no business owning or having access to them. Of course, the best way to deal with this is to vote homophobes out of office at state levels across America. That's not about to happen in states dominated by Republicans. The next best thing, in my judgment, is a complete lack of tolerance for those who would roll back LGBTQ rights with impunity. It also means not just celebrating pride for a month, but every day in the lives of supporters. Supporters also need to be aware of what businesses they patronize and whether they support LGBTQ people. If the far right can intimidate businesses, so too can progressives without resorting to violence, by the way. Enough is enough. I know my voice is only one, but if it makes one other person think, I figure I've done my job. And finally, just as a very quick aside, the debt ceiling crisis is over, at least for the next two years. President Biden, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reached an agreement. It is not making the far right happy. It's not making progressives particularly happy, particularly that work requirement that they have imposed on various programs, including food stamps. They've expanded that work requirement because we ought to be clear, it already existed, but now they're trying to make it more widespread. It is what it is, it's done. However, the people on the left, the progressives, ought gird their loins for the next fight on the debt ceiling that's coming up in two years. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.